Hey there, welcome to Drupal Easy Podcast 199. So close to our, uh, our, our double century mark here. Um, so my name is Mike Anello, as usual, and welcome to the Drupal Easy Podcast. Um, with me today, our guest is David Rogers. David, how you doing? I'm doing good. Glad to be so, here. Thank you. Um, well, let me introduce you to um, our listeners, because I don't think you've ever been on the podcast before, right? I, I... Uh, if I have, it's been a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. So David is, um, you are more of a front-end developer than, you know, I don't think I would, I would call you a Drupal developer, although you have developed in Drupal, but that's not your forte. It's not like you are one of uh, the people probably listening to this podcast who do Drupal all day, every day. That's um, right. You, although I will give you credit, you are um, one of the, I've known, you and I have known each other for a long time. You used to live here in Florida um, right. as well. Uh, I often give you credit um, outside of your earshot for um, being the person who kind of got me over the hump with Git as far as like conceptually understanding what Git does. Um, you are, you're a master of a, of a lot of different um, languages and, you know, kind of one of the smartest guys I know when it, um, in, in the IT space. So I don't know if I've ever said that to you, but I just said it to you on the podcast. So it's, it's official now. Um, I'll, you were... I'll try to <laughs> try to keep it humble there. Yeah, there <laughs> Appreciate <you> it. <laughs> so you are currently a senior front end and engineer at Pendo and tell us what Pendo is real quick. Uh, Pendo is a, a zero developer uh, required analytics and uh, in-app messaging solution for folks that are building software as a service. We have a snippet that goes into your app and we will then collect all of the uh, user activity that your users uh, perform inside of your app and uh, present that to your product managers. Uh, so they can get some insights and make some decisions about those things. And uh, it turns out there's a place in the app that they're stuck or that they, they've got a new feature that they want to announce rather than coming to the development team and says, hey, couldn't you add a bunch of tooltips all over the place? Oh, and make them conditional to just these users. Uh, we can present those tooltips. We can present uh, 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 light boxes. We can present uh, all kinds of different things, including poll, collecting polls and, and information from the users that then drive more analytics around uh, who has seen those tooltips and who has interacted with those features. So it's really a tool uh, for uh, product managers to get the information they need about how people are using the app and how they can improve the app and also directing them towards pieces of the app that they may not know about but probably need to know without involving the engineering department at all. Okay, that's that's a lot. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. And I don't want to dive. I, I I could ask you a, a ton of questions just based off that description, but I want to going to try and stick to the topic. But I will say, um, if you want to learn more about what David and his company do, uh, you can check them out at pendo.io. Right. Um, so today I want to talk about uh, React because you are a front end developer. You are familiar with a lot of these JavaScript front end frameworks. Um, and recently, over the past couple of years, um, there's been um, a little bit of a journey that the Drupal community has been taking, um, trying to figure out how to work with one or more of these JavaScript frame frameworks. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a discussion in the community um, about uh, which framework should Drupal work with. And you know, there are a, f a few options. Um, uh, you know, React was one of them, and, and Ember and Angular were among them. Um, and the net result of that was that 
the community decided we weren't ready to kind of commit to one of them. Um, and so instead, what we've spent the last two years doing is really strengthening our web services APIs um, so that we can work with a lot of different JavaScript frameworks. Um, but then something changed not too long ago. And David, maybe you can explain this better than I can. Um, you know, one of the front-end frameworks, um, React, which is um, managed, I'm not sure what the, what the best uh, verb is here, managed by Facebook, David? Is that the best way of saying it? Um, created by I, Facebook? Created by Facebook, uh, sponsored by Facebook. A lot of the Facebook, uh, a lot of the React core developers are Facebook employees. Uh, it'd be an, it, it's analogous to um, maybe uh, Acquia and Drupal on the Drupal side or um, Automatic and WordPress, right, where uh, there are outside contributors, they're totally outside contributors, and it's managed as an open source project, but um, by and large, the contributions are by, fa by Facebook employees. Okay. Uh, came from Facebook. Facebook was the one that came up with the architecture and and the implementation and um, kind of maintains the ecosystem and drives a lot of the community. Right, and, and until very recently, there was some, um, there's a bit of friction between open source projects actually um, uh, integrating with React because of a license issue with React, which has recently changed. Can you tell us about that just real quick? Uh, yeah, so uh, and this, this, is, um, this is to say like a little bit of history uh, the license for React has has kind of always been the license for React until recently. Uh, it just so, re but but recently, uh, a savvy developer uh, wrote a Medium post, uh, which we can get the the link to and, and publish that in the in the show notes. I'm sure uh, that exposed the fact that React and a bunch of other Facebook open source projects out there that are kind of in the React ecosystem. Um, that the license for React was a, kind of a, an odd one for an open source project. Uh, it was a standard BSD3 clause license, uh, which a lot of open source projects use, uh, but it had a kind of a writer on it that uh, protected Facebook's uh, nominally their, their patent, any patent uh, infringement or patent enforcement that they would use with any of their other properties. Uh, and basically, the license said, like the TLDR on his um, uh, on his post was, if you use React in any of your products, you forfeit the right to sue or counter sue Facebook for any patent infringement. Uh, and that that was kind of a deal breaker for a lot of folks. Um, that 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 post highlighted the. Uh, kind of the root cause there, but uh, React was gaining in popularity. Uh, Automatic had picked it up to use as the, um, the, the, the UI framework for the new WordPress uh, admin, um, and they very publicly um, pulled away from React uh, as a part of that because the community, uh, the React community, asked some very pointed questions. Why is this, why is this patents clause attached to the license? And does it really mean what we think it means? Uh, and Facebook was, their response was, yes, it, it does mean what you think it means. And no, uh, we don't have any intention of changing that because this protects us and lots of, you know, they gave lots of reasons and, and explanations for that. Um, but th th as they started seeing people start having a very public debate about 
uh, I don't think we can use React for our startup. I don't think we can uh, use React for this product that we're building. Uh, even Automatic saying, I don't think we can use this product inside of our open source software because of the open source licensing that goes along with it. You know, for those of you that don't know, if you adopt a piece, a library uh, into your open source software or even into your closed source software, but if you adopt a license into your open source software, uh, your open source software must be bound by a similar license or a compatible license with uh, whatever libraries you choose to uh, you choose to include. So that's why like there are so many different types of libraries. Some of them allow uh, public use only. Some of them uh, allow private use uh, or for-profit use. They, they allow them allow to be the library to be incorporated into a closed source license. Uh, and the folks at Automatic took a look at the BSD three clause plus patents license that uh, React was published under, and said, "I don't, I don't think, we, I don't think we can <clears throat> incorporate that into uh, WordPress after all." Even though they'd done a good bit of work, they backed away from it. And then the final nail in the coffin was the Apache Foundation um, giving the React license, what it became known as the BS3, three three, PSD3 clause plus patents or the React license, uh, a, an F rating, essentially. It was listed as, a, as an X license, as not uh, applicable for open source projects. Uh, and at that point, React rescinded their uh, initial um, excuses and said, no, we'll, we'll take out the patents clause. And they did in their public GitHub. They, uh, uh, they went back to a BSD3 clause. And they also did that with several other libraries that they maintain uh, that are kind of inside of the React ecosystem as well. They did not want to lose the support of the community and certainly these bigger backers because of a, a licensing issue there. So was it was it one of those things where a lot of these open source communities kind of all agreed that React was a best of breed, um, but no one was willing to touch it or, or embrace it until this patent clause was removed? Um, well, so one, one thing you have to keep in mind is in the JavaScript community, uh, code moves fast. Uh, this, this really happened over the course of a, a couple months, six months at the most, from the time that the developer, and we're talking about from the time that the developer in question uh, raised the issue of the BSD3 clause plus patents license until the Apache Software Foundation made their ruling and Facebook changed the license. So there, there really wasn't enough time uh, for many of the communities to abandon React altogether. It was, it was generally like the, the two big frameworks, the two big JavaScript frameworks out there uh, when you're talking about this type of programming are Angular.io, uh, the, the Angular 2 and beyond uh, fork of, of AngularJS, and, the, um, and React. Those are the two big ones. Most people are looking at either Angular or React. There are several smaller players that are more up and coming, but uh, if you're not on board with the Angular paradigm, most people then default to React. Uh, and a lot of people have had started with React or had code written in React, and the whole BSD3 clause plus patents issue, the, face, the, the React license issue, um, just had them rankled. It was, a, it was a public debate, I think, more than um, a public dumping of the library. All right, so um, enough about history and licenses. Uh, in a second, we're going to get into kind of more of the, you know, what is React? Like, you know, as a Drupal developer who has 
heard the word React, but not much more. What, is, what does it mean to me? When I'm, you know, is this something I'm going to need to use, or am I, you know, should I learn it? Um, you know, under what circumstances, you know, should I be using it? Um, so we're going to get into all that in a second. But before we do, I, I, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention our sponsor, MyDropWizard.com. Um, they've been a sponsor now for a few months, uh, so we thank them very much. They are a uh, Drupal uh, support and maintenance organization. So if you have a Drupal 6, 7, or 8 site, they support um, uh, all three, and they have basic um, maintenance plans. So they will keep your site up to date with um, security updates and bug, fi bug fix updates uh, for both Drupal core and contributed modules. And keep in mind, they also include Drupal 6 in that, which is no longer supported by the community and now supported by companies like MyDropWizard to keep your um, Drupal 6 sites uh, safe and secure until such a time where we can get them upgraded to uh, Drupal 7 or 8 or beyond. Um, so fees uh, start uh, as low as $99 a month. Um, they will uh, help make sure that your site stays online. Um, they can help answer um, uh, support questions for uh, popular uh, contrib modules as well as Drupal core and they often um, they will help out clients with you know kind of one-off maintenance tasks you know you know little CSS tweaks here and there or little configuration uh, um, changes on uh, a Drupal site. Um, in addition all plans include a site audit, 24-hour response time, complimentary hosting you know they just kind of throw that in, in there that that's kind of fun. Um, as well as a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you decide to try them out and, um, you know, after a few weeks you decide that it's not really for you, then, you know, no, no harm, no foul, get your money back and kind of go on your merry way. So by all means, if you um, are in the business of maintaining Drupal sites, you definitely want to check these folks out at mydropwizard.com. All right, David, so for someone who is listening to this podcast, been doing Drupal every day, you know, all day for years, um, but hasn't really kept abreast of JavaScript frameworks, um, you know, what is React? What, what does it do for us? What does it get us? Why should we care? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. Um, and I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds um, with, you know, like the, the architecture behind it, but... Um, from from my time in Drupal, uh, historically, uh, it's jQuery soup on the front end, right? Uh, we would um, we would render a bunch of stuff <clears throat> on the back end in PHP. Uh, the the modules would would uh, would hydrate templates with uh, with data from the content types and render as much of that to the uh, to HTML as possible. But the interactivity uh, on on the client side, uh, that's all that's all JavaScript, right? That's um, I have a form that I need a, a user to fill out. Uh, traditionally, we we we're talking about a request and response app where I fill out the form, I hit a button that sends a request back to uh, the Drupal server. The Drupal server processes that request to spit out maybe a a new comment on a page or uh, a new instance of a content type that I could then proceed to continue editing and, uh, or, or use somewhere else. Uh, that makes a round trip to the server so the screen goes dark for a second uh, while it's making the request and, and returning. Chrome's gotten better at kind of hiding that for us so that we don't, we don't, re we don't remember how, <laughs> how bad that was on, <clears throat> on DSL, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that goes to the server and comes back. Where we then we add JavaScript on top of that to make some of those requests asynchronous, uh, or 
will present a form in a modal when someone clicks on a link. And in order to do that, we have to we, we're creating uh, HTML elements, DOM elements on the fly with JavaScript to present the form. We capture the submit event from the form and send that to the back end with an Ajax call, typically with jQuery uh, in, in the good old days, bad old days maybe. Uh, the, ser the server would respond with maybe the fully rendered page or a partial of the uh, rendered page um, describing what, what it was that we just created. And again, with JavaScript, we'd capture that and inject it into another part of the page, uh, maybe with a drag and drop interface. The drag and drop interface also implemented with JavaScript, while the browser uh, provides us some APIs so that we can um, we don't have to do a lot of the heavy lifting ourselves with JavaScript. When I click on something and start dragging it, it'll give me the ghost element and all that type of stuff. Handling what happens to the page when I drop it or when I start dragging it, that it removes that element from the page and puts a placeholder to tell me where the element was. And then how, you know, as, I, as, I, as I move down the page with the mouse, showing where I can drop it, all of those things are handled with JavaScript, and typically in Drupal, um, with, with Drupal views and 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 front ends, uh, we would do that with jQuery, right? We would attach a bunch of event listeners, and uh, it was kind of like, well, where does this stuff go? Like, you know, it kind of goes in the JavaScript over here somewhere. It's, <laughs> it's fine, uh, you know, wherever you want to put it, you can make it work. It's fine. Uh, the shift in front-end development that took place at a good five years ago or so is um, uh, what we, we call reactive frameworks, um, where instead of uh, and, and single-page apps is, is the you know those are the buzzwords SPAs SPAs single-page apps. Uh, what happened was people started thinking about an application entirely inside of the browser. So a full-blown application living entirely inside the browser that never does a full page refresh uh, to send data or receive data back again from, like there is no rendered view that the, the server side ever generates. The server side acts as just a web service API layer uh, receiving data, receiving requests to create data or fetch data or modify data uh, in the data store and sending back a transformation of the data that it was sent. Oh, you, you send me all this, you send me all these fields, but you didn't send me an ID because that's my job. The, the back end says that's my job to go find, to create the ID in the database and send it back to you. So the response that comes back includes an ID field and maybe some other fields like when I actually, the timestamp that I actually created it on and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then the entire application is built inside the browser. Uh, there's no page refresh. It's all driven with JavaScript. Uh, the entire application is HTML with CSS painting what the JavaScript tells it to paint. Uh, and that was that was a big paradigm shift. These um, these frameworks like uh, Angular and libraries like React uh, have different um, different ideas about how to implement those types of uh, what we call thick client apps living inside the browser. Um, but fundamentally, they're they're the same. JavaScript is being used to do everything inside the browser. JavaScript, the the only HTML the server even sends is essentially a bootstrapping um, HTML page that includes the bare minimum HTML 
so you know head tag and a body tag and the head tag contains links to all the CSS style sheets and uh, the body tag contains a, a, a single element that says this is where the app will live and then a bunch of links to script tags for all the dependencies, the, the different libraries that are being used to, com to, uh, to generate that application. And as soon as it lands on the browser and the browser starts executing the JavaScript, the JavaScript takes over and starts generating more HTML to inject into that container. And it starts making requests via Ajax to the back end to get data to create more HTML to go into more templates. Even the templates are stored in JavaScript, in JavaScript strings, or in files that get converted to JavaScript strings by making more requests to the back end to, to pull that stuff. And th this makes a huge difference for application architecture. The back end can now be very lightweight and just handle um, data services. You can just handle these web services, while the front end lives can live entirely in a static S3 bucket uh, or just, a, just be served as a single set of resources uh, that the browser does all the work for us. Uh, and it doesn't really do all the work for us, but it, it changes the paradigm of how we build applications. Uh, we, if we fast forward just a little bit further, uh, now people are realizing that uh, doing that whole, doing all that work inside of the browser, especially for very large apps, can, uh, can make for a janky user experience. So if, we, if you think I give you a, a permalink to like seven pages deep inside of this app that's entirely written in JavaScript, uh, the JavaScript app boots up and then it has to go fetch all the things that it needs in order to get to that seven pages deep. And after 30, 45 seconds, it finally renders everything that's on the page. And you know, people are looking at that and going, well, we used to do, we, we could do deep links inside of services I had rendering. So now the, the, the next step that the, the holy grail that we're they're chasing now in JavaScript land is uh, server-side rendering for the deep links. So the request goes to the server, and the server says, oh, I know, I'll just go ahead and I'll build that, that part of the page. But I'll also send you all of the JavaScript applications so that it can continue after that, and I'll go back to being a uh, API server after that. Uh, so that, that's kind of the, that's like the big picture. So what you're describing, you know, sounds... It can, you know, almost completely opposite to the way Drupal works today, right? So Absolutely. Drupal is mainly server side. Some, and I'll even I'll you know use the word you know lightweight for the for the back end for React, and I'll say well for most sites it's kind of a lightweight front end for Drupal. You know, not a whole lot is going on in the browser. You know, other than some some job some jQuery stuff, right? Um, so obviously. If we start thinking about, well, how would we possibly integrate the two of these things? How would we possibly use React with Drupal if they're, you know, as you said, the paradigm is completely different? And I think I know what the answer is. So is it possible to use, you know, where React is just controlling part of the page rather than the entire page? Right. And that's, that's one, of the, um, one of the big advantages with React. And why I, I, I feel like this, this could be the right choice for Drupal particularly. Um, there, there, two, there are two fundamental differences, uh, maybe more, but two fundamental differences between, say, like the AngularJS camp and the React camp. Um, first, like AngularJS is what we would consider to be a framework. 
Um, and you know, just to, to, to play out my lexicon a little bit there, um, Drupal is a content management system, right? It's a full on system. It, you work within the boundaries of the system, uh, in order to make things that aren't included in the system, but it's a system. When I install Drupal, I get something that's fully functional right out of the gate. I have a fully functional web site application system, content management system right out of the gate. Uh, Drupal uh, makes use of Symfony. Uh, Symfony is a, a framework. If I install Symfony, and uh, there's no like, go Symfony, go, right? <laughs> that, some assembly is required. Uh, it's it's a, a big toolkit for me to be able to build something with in, along the lines of all of the PHP frameworks that have come before, uh, whether you're looking at something super tiny like Slim or, um, or Silex or you know, something as heavyweight as Symfony. There's lots of tools in that box that I could use to build something with, but it is not a install the Drupal, turn on the Drupal, use the Drupal. Uh, it is install the symphony, write several hundred lines of code. Maybe you have something you can use now. Uh, then there's, you know, like the next layer down is like a library. Symphony is comprised of many different libraries. Doctrine is one of those libraries. Uh, Doctrine's the ORM, the object relational mapper, the uh, database access layer for Symphony. Uh, I can do lots of things with Doctrine by itself, standalone. I can I can use Doctrine. I have used Doctrine in many PHP projects over the over the years. I've, I I was a PHP developer for many years before I uh, got into Python and eventually JavaScript. Um, Doctrine as a standalone library allows me to do things with its specific domain, and I can use Doctrine in any project that I want to because it is designed as a library. I import the library, I perform the actions with the library, connect to the database, or configure it to connect to the database for me, uh, pull records out of the database, modify the records, put the records back in. Uh, that's what Doctrine does. Uh, in JavaScript land, I have AngularJS, which is more on the framework side of things, and Angular IO, which is like the graduated uh, version of Angular JS. Angular IO is even more towards like the Symfony side of frameworks. And then I have uh, React, which is a lot more like a library than it is an actual framework. Uh, so the pros and cons of both of those with Angular JS and Angular IO, I'm building an application. That's the point of building something with Angular JS. I'm probably going to take over the entire page the entire application is going to be an Angular application. It comes with uh, it comes with a tool for connecting to server side to, for doing HTTP requests. It comes with a testing framework. It comes with or testing harness rather. It comes with um, uh, uh, it, with escaping rules. It comes with sanitization rules. It comes with a, a router. It comes with uh, it, it, you look at the structure of AngularJS or AngularIO, and if you just look at the component lists and what they do, if you're familiar with something like Symfony, they look very analogous. React, on the other side, is a little bit more like just one component. It's really a library for building uh, reactive web components. 
web component is just a piece of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript that knows how to render one thing. And in the, in the term reactive, to, to unpack the term reactive, if I change the values that I hand that, that thing, that component, it may change the way that it's rendered. And it does that on its own. I don't have to do anything else with it. That's kind of the sum total of what React does. I can create a chunk of HTML that will respond to me changing values in JavaScript. And it will also send up events that I can then send off requests. It doesn't include a way of communicating via AJAX. Uh, it doesn't. There's browser APIs for this now. Um, there's jQuery, right? They're all our old friend jQuery. There are standalone libraries that do that part. React does not include that part. React is kind of part of a larger ecosystem where if you're using React, you can use React for just one thing, just one small piece of your application uh, and just rendering. But you're kind of on the hook to figure out how do I get the data from the server? And what, how do I man, manage the state of the data inside of the application? Uh, am I building an application? Am I just building a component? You know, there's, a, there's a lot more burden on the developer to figure out how to use that. But it sounds like it also, but because that burden is on the developer, we also get a lot more of the flexibility. And that speaks to what, you know, the, the point I brought up is, is that I don't think at any time soon we're going to throw out Drupal's front end and replace it with React so that React is, is handling the entire page. I think it's going to be, um, you know, rather targeted where we're going to use React for this bit of the UI or this bit of the UI. And it sounds like React, the way you just described it, um, you used the word, you know, for component as well. It sounds like that's what you're thinking makes React a pretty good decision for Drupal is the fact that it, it, it's kind of built to be able to target parts of the page rather than take over the entire application. Right. It's very easy to be incremental with um, React compared to some of the other folks, out, compared to the other big folks out there, for, to, to Angular. Um, there are other libraries that are gaining traction now. Vue.js is one of my favorites. Uh, Riot.js uh, is another one of my favorites. They're all trying to implement web components in the browser with the technology that we've got. And then there's a larger project called Polymer from Google that's trying to drive the standard of what web components mean and push that those uh, those standards into the browser so that web components, the, the concept of a chunk of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript that are that's isolated and you know defines a single component, like that's built into the browser. We're probably several years off from that ever happening. And we were several years off from that ever happening five, six years ago when Angular and uh, React started getting popular and, and were built, uh, purpose-built for that. Uh, but those are two libraries that I would also consider, right? Is there a danger, though, in... You know, not to forget about just Drupal, but you know, you said WordPress has a commitment, to, you know, to React for their UI, and you know, Drupal's going down that road um, now as well. But you said before, and I think we all know that the, these JavaScript frameworks move so fast. And you just mentioned, you know, you know, Riot and Vue.js, and um, I mean, is there a danger in, in kind of making a commitment to to just one of them right now, or or is it kind of a necessary evil? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I do feel like it is, it, well, so for Drupal, Drupal works very well in the, the standard server-side rendering model and has for years and years and years and years. And Drupal's had um, 
a lot of a, a lot of uh, technological churn, like like Drupal eight introducing Symphony uh, that that was and and Doctrine and you know like that was a big undertaking, uh, and it's still not what we would consider complete, right? Like uh, it's it's not that Drupal is built on top of Symphony that we, all, all of Drupal was rewritten on top of Symphony. Uh, and Drupal has a historically longer, all of the Drupal modules, the whole Drupal community has an historically longer uh, release and maintenance cycle than anything in the JavaScript world. <laughs> but that's true of pretty much any, like Python, Ruby on Rails, all of them have a much more protracted uh, lifespan than anything in the JavaScript community. Um, so yeah, there's totally a danger in like saying, oh, well, you know, this thing's been around for three, four years. Uh, it looks pretty solid. Seems to check a lot of our boxes. Let's use that. Why does that happen? Well, why is that? Why is the JavaScript community? And this has got, gone off a little bit of a tangent, but why do? Why are things moving so quickly in, in the JavaScript community? Because it's, it's been going on, like you said, for a few years, and I don't think it really shows any signs of slowing down. Is this? Is this just the nature of? of the you know JavaScript gaining more and more adoption and you know maturing and better tools or what what's what's going on? Yeah, Mike, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of thoughts and opinions about that from having been in lots of other communities over the years. I, you know, I participated in the Ruby community. I, I I've been a Python developer. Uh, I was PHP developer. Um, I have lots of friends in, you know, like the C Sharp and iOS and, and Android side of things. Uh, I, I try to talk to lots of folks about that. And that's a question that comes up a lot with, uh, with a lot of us that have had experience um, writing software. And the folks that I get to work with at, at Pendo right now are, uh, you know, old red hatters that were on the, RP, you know, the guy that built RPM uh, I get to work with. So the idea of release maintenance and uh, long-term stable releases is kind of baked into their idea of what open source is. So the, the entire, the churn that happens in the JavaScript community is, um, uh, it's, is really surprising to them. It's a constant point of debate with us. Uh, I'd like to say that it's just a factor of how efficient we've become inside of the ecosystem. I think there is a lot of energy. Uh, there's there's a whole lot of of, um, of energy that gets poured into small, tiny modules that are easy to publish and, uh, and just explore an idea in inside of the JavaScript community. And the ecosystem inside of Node.js and the browser community have made it um, very very easy for people to do that, to do like drive-by modules, right? Uh, you think about what it was like to write modules and uh, that kind of code for Drupal. I could publish, I could probably publish a module on the Drupal modules site, right? I could, I could get something up there. Uh, but did it make sense for me to spend my time maintaining that thing and keeping it up to date with the latest Drupal. And in order for anybody to actually use it, I kind of have to like shop it around all over the place. Uh, and then how do you get it down? Well, now I've got to write installation instructions or, you know, you know, back in the Drupal six days, it was a little more onerous than as it had gotten um, later on where it was a lot easier to drop in modules and people were following uh, more modular standards and that stuff had come out. Uh, Node and JavaScript, uh, even JavaScript in the browser has kind of benefited from the 
the best mistakes that we've made in the PHP community and in the Python community and in the Ruby community and so on and so forth. So like package management was one of the first problems they tackled. Like NPM came really early. Yeah, because nobody wanted to deal with it like we've had to deal with it for years with other systems. Right. Like you, you look at by comparison, uh, when did Composer come out? Right? Uh, Python has gone through at least three different iterations of package management uh, from old, from setup tools to easy install to pip. And now there's like a pip2 thing that, you know, they're, they're talking about. Um, NPM, I, I feel like NPM, the, the NPM registry, which was separate from uh, the body as a whole, the language body as a whole, the language has moved slowly. That's the, the whole I don't know if anybody's followed the IO fork, um, IO.js that uh, that happened several years ago, and and now the new protest fork. Um, but like that, we we've really benefited in JavaScript and and in Node from the best mistakes that we've made in PHP and Python and Ruby, and you name it, right? Elixir, Java, um, all of the languages that have come before that have been public and open source. Node.js has led the way in JavaScript, uh, but the browsers have just kind of come along. Like all the browser tooling now is NPM powered and it is node powered. Like all the whole stack is coming from. So what you're saying is the next technology to come out, the next big open source technology that, that, that kind of takes hold, you know, post JavaScript is going to be moving at like warp speed. Yeah, there's there's going to be new things coming out every two weeks that you know we're all going to have to kind of keep track of because we're, we'll have learned even more lessons from you know what we're doing with with JavaScript now and we're going to plow those back into whatever's next. Well, I, and I would love I would love for that to be the case. Like I think the other the other driver for the churn inside of JavaScript is uh, the popularity of the language. It's really the only language that you kind of have to learn right now. Uh, we talk about backend programming uh, or server-side programming uh, or, or even like not serve, like nothing to do with web, right? Uh, your options are pretty plentiful as to what type of programming language you could learn to perform most tasks. Embedded systems is still probably C and C++, but those are getting more towards uh, JD, uh, uh, JVM languages. Uh, server-side is all over the place. You've got all of the usual subset subjects plus things like Elixir and we use at Pendo, we use Go. Um, we've got, there's, there's, you, I mean, you name it and there's probably another server side language coming closure, all the JVM language, Scala, uh, all that stuff is coming back around again. Um, but on the, on front end code, you, you, you got JavaScript. If you're building anything with. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the common denominator. Right. And so that that you have a big base of people that know JavaScript well or poorly, depending on how you look at it. And then the the siren call of, well, you could just write the same JavaScript on the server. It's totally a lie, right? You can just write the same JavaScript on the server, draws a bunch of people in. And then there's a kind of this paradigm around just write small modules that depend upon other small modules and publish those early. And you don't even have to publish them to the net to the registry to make them super public. You can just publish them on GitHub, and our package manager knows how to pull stuff directly from GitHub. 
And if a, if a package starts going out of uh, out of maintenance, if somebody somebody falls off the face of the earth and is no longer maintaining this package that everybody needs, the community will respond and fork the package, put it under a new namespace, and continue the development. Like that that nexus of GitHub, a public source code repository that everyone can use and does, uh, the the package manager that can use that directly, but can also also makes it really easy to, to publish um, packages directly to it and enforces some decently best practices around versioning and, and bundling and that sort of thing. Uh, and a bunch of people that know the language and have to use the language whether they want to or not. That, that's, a, that's a weird nexus that we haven't really been in before. Right, like the old SourceForge days were nothing like GitHub days. Let me—I I, got to pull us out of this rabbit hole because I, I want to get back. I want to get back to React because <laughs> I could—I—I I, I have a few more questions. Well, I—I I could have a few more questions about what we're, about this, but I, I got to pull us back out. Um, so going back to React and as a Drupal developer, um, when do I, you know? When, when will I know that, oh, this is something I need or I should use React for? Um, clearly, I, I think you've kind of already talked about this. You know, it, clearly it, it's, it's for front-end kind of interactivity. Um, but, I mean, for you, when you look at specs for, um, you know, a web application, is there something that you see in specs that is kind of like a trigger said, okay, we'll, we'll use React or we'll use a, a JavaScript framework for that bit right there. Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, um, I think, the, I think the, the delineator for me is, and I hate to sound like an old person, but it's, it's the old website versus web application boundary. Uh, traditionally, Drupal and most of the content management systems that exist have been used to build static websites or mostly static websites. I mean, a lot of the hosting companies like, uh, like Pantheon and, um, uh, give me another one, uh, <laughs> Acquia cloud, um, even, even the AWS offerings or, um, or, or, or similar offerings. Like the big part of that is we will cash the crap out of your Drupal site to reduce the server side rendering load because we know you're mostly just using Drupal to assemble a semi-static website, right? So the boundary there is when I'm building something that static assets are like the, the uh, or static content is the tiniest part of that. Uh, there may be some static content on my website, but mostly it's about people interacting with the website and building things, building their own um, <clears throat> their own objects, uh, <clears throat> building their own uh, their own data, and then using my application to access that data. So, if people are building, so let me just throw out a couple examples here. So, you know, if people are building sites for like a large organization that you know they might have a dozen different content types, but for the most part, it's basically just surfacing organizational data. To the public, that's what you're calling like a static site. Without you know, users aren't going to that website for a whole lot of interactivity. They might be searching. They might be you know, well, they're definitely browsing. They're using the menus and stuff, but 
that's not what we're talking about as far as a web application. That's more of just static, you know, pushing stuff to the browser, people consuming the, the content and, and moving on to different content. If I could use some, if I could use some real world analogies, uh, places like whitehouse.gov, right? Whitehouse.gov is powered by Drupal, right? Last we knew, yes. Last we knew. As, as, long, as, far, as, as far as the NSA will let us know. <laughs> Whitehouse.gov is powered by Drupal. Whitehouse.gov is quote-unquote dynamic in that folks from Whitehouse.gov, folks that work at the White House, are constantly publishing content to Whitehouse.gov. Say they were commenting system on, on that, and there needed to be authenticated users in order to use that commenting system. That's even more dynamic, right? That's user-generated content or viewer-generated content. Uh, if we were to look at whitehouse.gov, that's a mostly static site. Nobody is creating anything except for the people that work at whitehouse.gov. You flip that over, the, the back office to whitehouse.gov, the, the Drupal control panel to whitehouse.gov. That's a web application. That's what the whitehouse.gov staff uses to create their pieces of content and choose publishing rules and assign those to different pages or different campaigns or uh, manage the categories. There, there aren't a ton of business objects inside of, inside of that content management system, but there's enough that we, we could consider that a web application. The idea that Drupal would like to use React or start leading the way on how to use React by pulling it into the admin panel makes a lot of sense. That's actually exactly what WordPress is doing, what Automatic is doing with WordPress.org. The WordPress project is pulling React in to replace the JavaScript, the jQuery soup that exists in the WordPress control panel, and that therefore leading the way on how do you make a web service that exposes these content types so that they can be consumed by React or another JavaScript framework to display on the admin panel. Let's take that another step. Whitehouse.gov is a content management system. It's for publishing content. The public side, the www.whitehouse.gov, can totally be cached for the most part. It's going to change every couple hours if there was a process by which the Drupal server could say, blow out the cache for the homepage because I just published something, or blow out the cache for this specific detail page because we changed the article or whatever, right? Like, those are just, that's just caching rules. It's basically just building a static website that the public is going to consume. The back office for whitehouse.gov is a web application, but a very small, simple web application for the people that create content on whitehouse.gov. Healthcare.gov, oh no. There is a part of healthcare.gov that is static content. If you looked at www.healthcare.gov, there's static content explaining what is healthcare.gov and what do I need to use this for? And here, am I going, is the IRS going to come knocking on my door if I don't have a healthcare plan by the time I file my taxes? And all the stuff that goes into healthcare.gov. But there is a step at which I say, I need to buy healthcare. I would like to use the national uh, insurance registry. I would like to use the marketplace. As soon as I have to log in and authenticate, and I'm creating records in the database for me to represent me and my beneficiaries or my dependents, 
uh, and I'm trying to select data from a list of all these uh, all these health insurance plans, and that that data has to be filtered down to uh, my th- things that are eligible for me by my geography, by my uh, age range, by the number of dependents that I have, by the type of plan and coverage that I want, and there's all this interactivity, and then that ultimately turns into David Rogers has signed up for this plan and is paying with this credit card and so on and so forth. That's a web application. That's a full-on web application. Uh, I've got to I've got to create business objects, and I need to I want to do that in a way that creates the best user experience. Health insurance buying health insurance is not the best user experience uh, by itself. I want a I want a uh, reactive UI, a reactive interface that's not going to leave me staring at a white screen or staring at a blank screen or staring at a loading spinner uh, indefinitely while I'm doing this hard thing. I want to make this as easy as possible. That's, yeah. It sounds like I can probably simplify this even a little bit more. You know, as a Drupal developer, if I'm tasked with, and maybe this isn't the situation today, but this is kind of the direction that we're heading as, as this the, the Drupal, you know, journey with React kind of matures a little bit. But in the future, if I'm tasked with something, regardless of if, if it's on the public side or the admin side, that I would traditionally think would be, you know, a bunch of jQuery, some Ajax calls, um, that feels to me like, okay, that's a trigger that, hmm, maybe this is an opportunity to use React instead of kind of the old way of doing it. I, I think with React, you would still need to use JavaScript. For, you'd still need to use uh, jQuery and, and native JavaScript for the AJAX section of things. But once, you know, like any time that I that I was using jQuery to create DOM elements based on data that came back from the server, or I was using um, I was using jQuery to attach a bunch of event listeners so that I could react to those events when they happened click events or drag and drop events or anything like that. That's the perfect, that is that when I get into that jQuery soup where I've got all these event listeners that are triggering these other things and I'm, sh- I'm shoving data nodes onto the DOM and I'm so that I can communicate back and forth to one another. Uh, and it's kind of a mess. That's the point at which I would say use react. If you need to use, if you need to get data from the back end, JavaScript, JSON data, or XML data, or something like that, you're going to turn it into a JavaScript object, and then you're going to use that JavaScript object to generate HTML, use React. Very good. So let me, let's start wrapping this up a little bit. Let me, um, one more, one more kind of big general question I want to ask you. And so there's, there's definitely a lot of people in the Drupal community who, I've been following this whole saga with JavaScript frameworks and who haven't, you know, like, and I'm among them who have, you know, I've followed, I've been reading, I've maybe sat in on a presentation or two at a Drupal camp or Drupal con, but I haven't actually gotten my hands, you know, dirty yet with any of this. Um, Number one, you know, to get started, do I, it sounds like I don't need anything special, like on my local lamps or my local amp stack. It sounds like I'm basically just adding... At its heart, I'm adding a bunch of React libraries and, and, and writing some code, and it's getting sent to the browser like anything else. Is that a fair statement? Is there anything special I need to actually get started with React as far as tooling is concerned? 
Uh, not necessarily. There's um, there's a piece of the React library called uh, JSX uh, that actually came from the uh, the Facebook library PHX, where uh, I write HTML inside of JavaScript in JSX. In PHX, it was I write HTML directly inside of PHP, not like we're used to, where we escape from PHP and uh, then start writing in, in HTML and then go back into PHP, where I, I have a structure, I just start writing literal HTML syntax where I would normally write a string. And PHX understands that and turns that into an internal data structure. JSX does the exact same thing, and it makes working with the HTML side of, uh, of the web component a lot easier. In order for that to work, you kind of have to compile your React. You have to you have to take the JavaScript and pass it through a what's called a transpiler to get native JavaScript back out on the other side. So that feels like like a SAS preprocessor, the way you're describing. Exactly, exactly like a SAS preprocessor. Any of the CSS preprocessors, um, you'll you'll need a, a piece of that stack. Okay, and so and so, what's the easiest or like what's the best or the recommended way of getting? You know, that, what you called it a transpiler? Is that what you called it? Right. That ships with React. Like, JSX compiler, when you install React, uh, you get a JSX command that you can transform JSX back into JavaScript. And that's a part of the, that's part of the React library. If you uh, Reactify your, <laughs> um, your React code, uh, it will compile the JSX for you. You just have to tell it that you're using JSX. All right, so you're basically, so it sounds like what you're, I'm going to use the word recommending, tell me if I'm wrong using that word. Um, you write in JSX, and then you transpile to JavaScript, and then the JavaScript is what you're including to get sent to the browser. Right, very analogous to the SAS to CSS, except that uh, you're not typically doing, like the, there's a SAS compiler written in PHP, right? And so Drupal can compile the SAS server side and spit out CSS whenever that file would be asked for. Um, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to <clears throat> have the SAS compiler running as a part of your build process, or running as a part of your deploy process even. So it takes the SAS files and generates a big CSS file so Drupal never has to process it. Um, I'm saying that React is gonna work more like option two there for SAS. You're, you're going to want to run your JSX code, your, your React components through the compiler and ship those, those compiled components uh, for, as a part of your deployment. Yeah, so I think the way the, the, most people do it in, in the Drupal community, it, it, I don't even say most, but a, a lot of people, that all, ha that all happens locally. You know, you're, you're compiling your SAS down to CSS locally, and then you're committing that CSS to the repo, and that you know that goes to the server. So it sounds like it's it's analogous. You know, and obviously you can make that part of your build process on on a, a CI server or something. Okay, um, and all that everything you need comes with when you initially install React. That that's correct. Uh, there's if if you're looking for a place to play with React, there's a good. Um, project called Create React App, Create Dash React Dash App, uh, that will give you a just standalone React app with no backend, uh, completely backend agnostic. It's just like a little tiny uh, Express server, JavaScript server, running to serve up assets. 
Uh, and that'll let you play with just React. There's some great tutorials around Create React App, and the, the tutorials on the reactjs.org website uh, will also help you with that. Those are great ways to intro. Uh, but for like production-ready stuff, you're you're absolutely right. We would we would compile and ship the compiled code just like we would compile and ship the compiled CSS. Right. So everything we're talking about right now, just you just said a second ago, but I want to make it crystal clear. Everything we're talking about is is front end only. We're not talking about any of you know running React on the back end yet. Right. And that's we're, we're, and we're not going to talk about it this podcast. We're kind of ease our way into this. Um, okay. So and so you just touched on kind of like the last the last little topic I want to cover here. Um, so someone's been listening to this podcast for an hour and they're React curious and they kind of want to start you know, kind of getting, you know, dipping their toes in the water. Um, where are some good resources as, as far as here's what to do first, here's what to do second, uh, anything that you would recommend out there? Um, yeah, I, I think the, the the best, the first best step is uh, checking out the, the tutorial on reactjs.org. Uh, it, it's got some, some basic, like, how do I get started at home? And uh, even the reactjs.org homepage has like an interactive uh, play with this box that you can start playing with some of their examples. Um, that's a good place to go. Uh, I, I believe Code School has a Try React uh, course. That's another good place if you're if you're into like watching videos uh, and and doing exercises on top of that. The um, the the Code School courses are great for that. Um, and then there's some, you know, like you can get paid courses, you can buy stuff on, there's lots and lots of Udemy courses on React uh, if you're more into that, that type of um, self-directed e-learning. Um, the, big, the best thing, the biggest and best thing that I can tell you to do is just try it, right? Like uh, in places where I was, I'm totally, I was totally gonna write this custom field or content type and have it, you know, give it a render method that would spit out this specific thing instead. What if what if you spat out a bunch of properties and and rendered it with React instead? Um, not that you would do that for production sites. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it for production sites right yet. Let the community lead the way on the best way to get the data and render render the data with React uh, via their admin contributions. But if you just want to play with it, just play with it. Just see see how it works. I know a, a lot of my students would. When we got through Angular, um, they knew how to build websites more or less, and they knew a little bit about Angular, and they needed a blog, so they would build a blog using Angular and some of the tools that we had used in, in class. I would totally not advocate people to build, don't build a blog in Angular. <laughs> like, that's probably not, you know, there's like better solutions out there for that. But if you, if you want to practice that, then man, just go build something. Yeah, well, you said a second ago it was something we haven't mentioned yet. So we talked about the Drupal community, you know, is planning on adopting React, and it's. I, I'm not sure if this is official yet or if this is just something I've heard, but I, I've heard it from multiple sources, so I'm pretty sure it's true. Um, that I, I believe the current plan as far as where we're going to start integrating React into Drupal Core first is going to be on the recent log messages page. Um, where it's basically it's just a, it's a view of, of log messages with some you know basic filtering and and, and, and things like that. So, um, all right, cool. I think 
I think this just about covers what I was hoping to cover. Do you think we missed anything big, David? No, I've, I've really enjoyed it. All right, so before we wrap up, because we're gonna, I'm going to have some fun with you in a second. I don't know if you've actually read through the entire rundown. If not, it'll be a surprise. Um, let me mention uh, real quick that as far as um, Drupal Easy News is concerned, our next long-form class that's uh, going to be starting up after the new year is called Mastering Drupal Development Workflows with Pantheon. It's a six-week class, three half days a week, where we dive into Drupal best practices um, specific to hosting on Pantheon. Um, so there's some stuff that is, you know, uh, developer workflows with Pantheon, um, using uh, their, a search API with Pantheon uh, solar servers, using their Quicksilver hooks and things like that. Um, but then there's also some Drupal best practices on information architecture, um, obviously, it's very heavy in uh, using Composer and, and, and building your site the right way um, for use uh, on Pantheon. So you can go to DrupalEasy.com to check that out. There's a big banner on the homepage. That class starts on February 27th, so be sure to check that out. Uh, David, where can people find you online? Uh, you, you, my, my name's pretty common, David Rogers, so you can find me at AlDX and uh, AlDX.me. Al-D-X is, uh, is me pretty much on anywhere, including GitHub and LinkedIn and all the rest of those places. And on Twitter, it's underscores, right? Uh, yeah, they didn't, they didn't like the dashes. GitHub didn't like the underscores. They, they never get along, those two. All right, that's okay. Well, we'll put the link in the show notes. It'll be fine. Um, okay, so um, five questions. I don't know if you saw the, this in the rundown, but... Um, I'm going to have to kind of adopt some of these questions um, because you're not, you know, uh, you don't do Drupal 100% of the time. But So name something interesting you do outside of technology. Oh, mm. do I have interest? I mean, I ha uh, so interesting, I have four kids. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's the answer, I think. And, and we are homeschooled. <laughs> uh, my, my wife homeschools our kids. So I, I get to teach my kids... Um, all, all the time. Uh, Rachel and I are working on the, what the curriculum is going to look like for the computer science side of things. Like, how do we start teaching our six, seven, our seven and, and five-year-old uh, computer science uh, and, and the, at least the concepts? Um, so that's, that's kind of like my, the closest thing I have to a hobby, which is still feels like work. <laughs> do you guys have a, um, I have a bunch of other friends who homeschool their kids and most, but not all of them have a separate room in their house that's dedicated to school. I'm using air quotes. I'm not sure if I should be there. Um, do, do you have a, a place in your house that the kids know that when they're in that room, it's, it's time for learning? Uh, yes and no. Uh, when, the, like when we were house shopping here in Raleigh, uh, we were looking, we had to look for a specific, uh, we had some specific constraints. We needed a room that could be the majority, the homeschooling room uh, and it's really more about like keeping all of the stuff that goes along with homeschooling. You think about uh, a, an actual classroom at a school that that's a designated place and it's got closet space <laughs> for all of the stuff that goes into teaching the kids. Uh, so we have, we do have a study, what we call the study and that's, uh, that's wall to wall bookshelves and cabinets that have all of the uh, homeschooling supplies for crafts and things. They don't always do all of their homeschooling in that room. So it's also kind of a, a play area because there's lots of like creative 
it's creative things for them to play with tinker not tinker toys lincoln logs and and blocks and the cars and and the the track and all that type of stuff uh a lot of the like formal education happens at our uh, kitchen table so we have a little small kitchen table and they know uh, they have they have like an area inside of the kitchen table area like like inside of the little breakfast nook that has their daily work in it and they go through their daily work and when they're done they put it in a, a completed folder like good little corporate drones <laughs> but it's it's more like you know a 30 45 minutes maybe an hour worth of dedicated worksheet work uh to practice fundamentals like handwriting and math and um uh, penmanship and uh build towards reading skills and that sort of thing uh, and then they do a lot of activities outside. Of but yeah, we, uh, we've had friends that have been homeschooled and they, they come to visit us and they say, oh, you have pictures all over your walls and maps and crazy things. You are homeschoolers, aren't you? How did you know? All right. Number two, last, the, I'm sorry, name the last piece of software you installed on any device or platform. Um, well, I just updated... Uh, I just updated Linux Brew, which is a Linux port of Homebrew for Mac. Um, I guess that's kind of an update, but like hardcore installed, I installed Ubuntu Budgie, which is a Mac-ish uh, desktop for Ubuntu um, based on the Solus project on my new work computer that's a StinkPad um, X11 Carbon uh, I made the jump. A lot of the folks at, at work were are old Red Hat folks, like I said. So they're all all the back end folks are Linux, and all the front end folks are Mac. Uh, and so I was like, well, this, this is the best time to finally make the jump to Linux instead of flirting with it. So uh, I, have a, I have a ThinkPad running Ubuntu Budgie, and it has been fantastic. All right, very good. Um, so what's a goal that you uh, have that scares you a bit that you haven't yet accomplished? Ooh, that's that's pretty easy. Uh, I really enjoyed my time teaching full time at uh, the Iron Yard. Uh, that was job minus one. Um, I've I've been sort of t toying with uh, the idea of building Udemy courses and doing some online education uh, and building a community around that. And it kind of terrifies me that I will do this horribly. Uh, I have a I have a brand behind this. I have I've, I've invested some time and effort and and a lot of thinking and uh, a lot of writing uh, and that's that's what I'm looking. That's what I want to do next is start building out that curriculum and and build a community around um, around learning that stuff. All right, very good. Um, what's the last exotic animal that you hand fed and will also accept that you've handled? Ah, <laughs> uh, man. Uh, well, we did spend a lot of time in Florida, so there were many different alligator trips. Um, we lived in Sanford, right on the lake, and I think that was the last time. Like one of the one of the DNR guys had had pulled a, a gator away from um, the. Um, we didn't get hand feed the thing, right? But uh, like feed him a hand. But had pulled the gator away from um, away from the Marina Island out there, and the, we just happened to be downtown with the kids. <laughs> How can you say no? And the kids are like, "Daddy, can we go pet the alligator?" 
yeah, that's that's a yeah, that's that's a that's a tough uh, that's a tough thing to walk away from with little kids, especially when it's a, a relatively safe situation. <laughs> um, and this last question, I don't know, it's not the the normal question we ask is, what was your tipping point Drupal moment? Like, what was you know, at what point did you see something in Drupal that said, okay, yes, this is something I want to use? And maybe, you know, so maybe as, as someone who has experience with a lot of CMSs and a lot of different languages, let me ask, I'll slightly spin the question a little bit for you, but what do you think about, um, what's a feature about Drupal that you think sets it apart and makes it, you know, um, you know good or, or like special? Um, so yeah, uh, Drupal's, I've always had a, like a love hate relationship with all the content management systems, uh, especially the PHP ones, right? Like WordPress was my go-to for a long time. And we did, you and I did several projects together with, with Drupal, um, and Ryan Price and, and I collaborated on some Drupal projects. I, I think one of the interesting things about Drupal is how easily it empowers people to, to build something that is non-trivial. The idea of the abstract content types and, and being able to build those piece by piece without having to write a lot of code is possibly Drupal's biggest selling point. You know what, that, that's funny you say that because I, when I talk about Drupal to people interested in learning Drupal or, or anyone else, I, I don't use the same words that you just use, but I'm a firm believer that the thing that makes Drupal special is the fact that you can customize the type of content that it that it manages without touching code. And I think you're basically saying the same thing. Absolutely. But, yeah, absolutely. Being able to, con to construct a very complex content type without writing any code is certainly unique to Drupal. It, having done WordPress and Drupal a lot, it's, it's one of the like... It's, it's one of the biggest foot guns in Drupal where like once I've created this content type, how the heck do I get this into production, right? <laughs> I just clicked on a bunch of things. Where's the thing that I click on to go like send this over there, uh, right? Whereas developers, I'm, I'm used to, I write all this code and this code makes this thing and then I take that code and I put it somewhere else and it also makes that thing some, somewhere else. Uh, but being able to hand that off to someone who doesn't know how to write code is just magical. Um, so let me wrap things up here. As always, I want to say thanks to our longtime sponsor, webenable.com and devpanel.com. If you enjoyed this episode want to hear more, go to drupaleasy.com slash podcast or just you know Google for Drupal Easy Podcast or search in iTunes or, or whatever. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to wrap it up there. We've got a couple other podcasts uh, coming up. Um, our next one is episode number 200. So we're actually in the process of trying to figure out what we're going to do for that one. Um, but after that, we have podcasts. Um, I said that funny, didn't I? We have podcasts. 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 Yeah, little. it's not quite Southern. I'm not sure what that accent was that I just... I think it's, I think it's Bostonian there. Yeah, well, I, I grew up... up in Connecticut, so I don't know. Maybe there's like there something deep, deep in my brain that's just trying to escape there. Um, I lo lost my train of thought. Thanks, David. I appreciate that. You're welcome. <laughs> um, podcast <laughs> episodes with, oh yeah, with Jacob Brockowitz is coming up. He is uh, the maintainer of the web forum module, um, as well as with Matt Guaman, 
who is one of the main guys behind Drupal Commerce, and he's got a second edition of his book coming out. Um, we talked to him about his first edition, and I really, you know, I loved the first edition so much that when he told me he had the second edition coming out, um, I said, hey, come on back on the podcast. We'll talk a little bit about commerce. We'll talk about a little bit about the second edition and have a good time. And so that's what we're going to do. So that's what we all have to look forward to in the coming weeks. Uh, David, always great to uh, touch base with you. We don't get to do it as often since you abandoned Florida, but, you know, for for good reasons. And uh, now you don't have to live through the uh, the horrible summers that we have down here. Yeah, the, the endless summer. Yeah, which I think it's now um, uh, weather update. I think summer, if I say it, it's probably going to come roaring back, but I think summer's finally over. Um, yeah, but we've actually had a few days. I've, I've actually had a hoodie on. Um, so it's been in the 70s? It is. It has been in the in the mornings. I would say this morning. I was out early this morning running. I would say probably in the low 60s maybe. It's been really nice. But I've, I had to put pants on last night to go out. My wife and I had a, had a, an event we had to go to last night where I had to wear pants. So that's always something. She's, she, keeps you, she keeps you civil. She keeps me civil, yes. All right. Um, yeah, let's, let's wrap this up. We're, we've been you know, talking long enough here, I think. Uh, so, David, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate it. And we'll see everybody on the next Drupal Easy podcast. See ya.